0: Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is Derek burl and Derek, it's wonderful to see you after i think it's more than twenty years of friendship and comradeship. Sounds right and but i haven't and yet I haven't seen you for a long time, so please share with us what is exciting you, troubling you dynamizing you interesting you right now
1: uh well you know the taylor swift thing has been pretty great uh <laughs> with the super bowl uh yeah. i've also been i've been it's it's cold here so uh, our uh our heater kicks on to a nice solid e note uh <laughs> so every time i hear that it cues up uh, i'm just ken from the barbie uh, movie <laughs> so those are my those are my hot hot topic pop cultural moments right well now.
0: i love that prof d and actually i must admit i really liked barbie i thought it was terrific after about five minutes i thought i get it but this is going to be boring but it actually wasn't what what was your take
1: uh yeah i enjoyed it i i went in with not much expectation uh, which I think you have to do with movies like that. Um a hamburger's a hamburger, a filet mignon's a filet mignon. <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I really enjoyed Ryan Gosling's work. I've I've been mildly obsessed with him since uh Drive came out. I think that was twenty eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm lucky I get to teach that uh movie in um in my intro to film studies course. But uh yeah I I, I thought strangely uh, Ryan and Ken uh, stole the show, which I don't think obviously was the intention of, of Gerwig, but uh, I, I can't decide whether it's sort of undercut the the feminist like message of the film, or uh, whether it was just a sort of nice rejoinder about masculinity and uh, how it always seems to take over, even if it's posing itself as you know <laughs> uh, feminist aligned or something like that.
0: And Prof, you've written about masculinity. So before we get back to back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary to the yep. bowl and to Taylor Swift. Tell us a bit about or expand if you would a, a wee bit on this. I think quite profound insight you've given us about masculinity creeping its way into the center of things, even when it's meant to be marginalized. Yeah. I.
1: It's I've been really looking at the major changes of masculinity, particularly in North America, uh, since graduate school, which would have been the late 90s. Um, And it's been fascinating because in the 2000s, we had things like um, queer eye for the straight guy um, and uh, metrosexual and, um, you know, problems like low T uh, mixed in with a kind of, uh, you know, post nine eleven nationalist, uh, hyper-violence, hyper-machoism. Um, so yeah, there's this constant push-pull, um, here at least between, uh, being a progressive male and, you know, understanding what something like Me Too actually means versus, uh, retaining that rock-hard physical, um, macho-ness that, uh, that is so deeply American. Uh, so I just, you know, the, the push-pull that I've seen over the past 15, uh, 20 years, it's been pretty fascinating.
0: Now, you're a sports fan and a sportsman. Yep. yep. How does that play out? And you've written about gaming. You've been, a, you've been a prominent surfer. How does that play out in terms of your analytic life as a scholar Yep. And an author of books and articles, and your incarnated embodied experience.
1: Uh, I it's well, I'm obsessed with the body in general, I'm obsessed with bodies, I always have been as as an athlete. Um, I've also worked in medicine when I was younger, um, I've worked at restaurants, uh, I've been a dancer, I've been a performer. Uh, so all deeply embodied activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think I realized very young that uh, the the mind body split with me didn't really work, uh, and that they've really sort of just functions as one thing. I've always been really lucky um, to be uh, fairly adept uh, with my body and my um, my dexterity. So when I write, I try to. I was very lucky, to actually, to be placed in the dance department. Uh, at u c Riverside, before I joined uh, the Media and Cultural Studies Department with you uh, because that helped craft my writing uh, really towards an embodied sense of how to write about things what with the body included um so things like affect um, uh, identity i i i can 't look or think. Through any of those ideas without thinking about, well, what would this person or what would the, the mm-hmm. theoretical body uh, do in response to that or um, uh, filter the experience?
0: And I, I really love the fact that you give us a continuum. You the I think I'm right in saying that the dance department at the University of California Riverside, first school in the country, if not the world, to offer a doctorate in dance,
1: I think that's right. Yeah.
0: A very distinguished department. And then you were kind enough to join our new (laughs) enterprise, our new try. Yeah. But I love the way you give us a continuum from being a dancer, a waiter, a scholar, an athlete, that these things can be seen on a spectrum.
1: Yeah.
0: completely opposed.
1: I I don't see them as, as separate at all. It's, it's a, it is a series of separate skill sets, but uh, it, it always filters through the embodied experience. Uh, and, you know, the body is written on by like, time and space and politics and culture. And I, I think understanding how those skill sets change over time uh, is one of the, the bigger challenges for most men. Um, I mean, we're, we're looking at two really quite old men, uh, you know, running for president. Uh, both with diminished uh, mental faculties, most likely, and both clearly with diminished physical faculties, but they, uh, you know, will not fucking give up uh, no. it, because to do so would be, you know, to yeah. admit defeat. And
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I was talking to this, talking about this with somebody just the other day on the podcast. Actually, on the one hand, a lot of us would look at the Senate. In the United States, and I give a lot of context here, Prof. D, because the plurality of listeners is in the U.S., but the majority is not. So, yeah, let's give that little bit of context, right? Which you're already doing wonderfully. Look at the Senate, and we complain all the time: it's just old white men, right? Yeah, and I think we can all resonate with the concerns about the general and genuine cognitive capacity of both the principal presidential candidates but on the other hand discrimination against the elderly is rife oh, no. in the yeah. united states but everywhere how do we can we reconcile being horrified by the exclusion of people who are not you know older white guys from the senate and being horrified by the brutalized discussion of older people that we're experiencing in the bourgeois media and in everyday conversations.
1: Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to imply um, that they both aren't necessarily fit for office, I'm not sure, um, or to disparage um, anyone of older age. Uh, Having gotten sick, uh, I actually do understand how the body fails um, and that's been actually really valuable, um, but I do think that uh, leaders of of the U.S. and the Senate, the the House, uh, they should be held to a certain kind of standard yeah. because they are representative of of a, you know co- the constituents, but also of of ideas and of policies. Uh, so balancing that, I I don't have an answer for that at all, um, but, I, no, but I do I, agree I, with you. I don't
0: either. I I yeah. really don't. And I just think there's a tension there that's probably not resolvable, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right.
0: not resolvable. but you talked about you mentioned having getting sick, but that: watching- or, it's,
1: or it's resolvable for certain age groups, but if we look at it on the whole, yeah, no, it's, that's what to them. I mean, you know who young people, uh, our students, they can't they have no idea how old we are. I I could be 35, I could be 65. <laughs> because that's what happens when you're that age, this sort of, there's that narrowing of understanding of aging.
0: But although you're so, younger than me, Derek, we both grew up in the era of popular culture yeah, and the fetishization of youth culture. You just mentioned empathizing, I think we could describe it, with the notion of a body that doesn't work the way you want it to or you were used yeah. to and being sick. And... That's something that these guys are not accepting, whereas I sense from what you say that you're trying to work through it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I I think that's at the core of of a lot of American, particularly white masculinity is. um, But it certainly is true for black masculinity um, as well and other. Other groups, Um, there's a sense that. You know, you are you're the sum of your body's ability. Um, and that your your cognitive abilities, your creativity uh, is, is just not as important. Um, and that, I think, goes with the general sort mm-hmm. of United States cultural phenomenon of shitting on intellectualism and intellectuals. Um, so there has to be a necessary replacement for that in masculinity, and that's always the body. And so when the body fails, you, know, you have to get on tea, you have to start going to the gym, you have to battle it. It's a battle, right? Just like sickness, is a battle. Right, right,
0: right. And these metaphors often invoke war. Yeah, absolutely. And and that can be the case if you're citing Gramsci, or if you're inciting (laughs) Richard Nixon or Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, It's one of the things that makes me quite uncomfortable. Uh, But the sense of a struggle with yourself, a battle with your body, and so on. And also the idea that in the case of Biden, he shows his fitness by being a bicycle rider
1: and kind of shuffling quickly to the and podium. shuffling quickly when he's. I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so back to the one of the other first two things you mentioned, Prof D, and that's the Super Bowl. It's just two days out from a Super Bowl. One hundred and twenty-three million people watching it in the United States. That shows. Ooh. Guess what?
1: Highest watched ever, I think.
0: TV is not dead, dude, even if it's sometimes on a telephone or a laptop or a tablet. TV, forever, dude.
1: Yep, yep, agreed.
0: How much of uh, today, my younger daughter, who's eight, and I went to Madrid's Waxworks Museum, and perhaps the most prominent figure there was Taylor Swift in her waxed incarnation and the one that most interested us. How much of the $123 million was switched on because of what's going on with her and her dude? And can you explain that, especially for people outside the United States?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's fascinating to me because, well, Taylor Swift's romantic life has always been extremely public. Um, and right. she is well known for mining it uh for her work uh and her lyrics are incredibly confessional and appear to be very open particularly about romance um and she's been heartbroken a number of times and it's been very public Uh, so what's so unusual about her relationship with kelsey um is that number one he's a football player uh the nfl is well known as a, a red state ticket uh it it it, it's conservative it uh you want to talk about battle metaphors uh they're obsessed with the military (laughs) including having you know a color guard or or military presence on the field at most uh nfl games certainly the super bowl Uh, and i think they still have a flyover of jets uh we sing the national anthem so it's an incredibly nationalistic event um with you know shades certainly of fascism uh what's odd about the relationship between these two is that uh there are a number of conspiracy theories uh, circling around it that uh taylor swift is trying to let's say maybe turn the nfl soft um <laughs> or or turn turn it gay or you know it's in the, in their parlance uh to, just to make it into uh something less than it is let's again muscular Um, And there was worry that she was going to, you know, announce her or or the conspiracy theories were that she was going to announce her support for Biden. And arguably, she's one of the most influential people in the U.S. right now and has been for quite some time. And so her her legion of fans called Swifties, uh, they estimate as voters could make up a block as big as 30 million people. So that's an enormous. It's an enormous amount of influence. So the obviously, uh, people that wouldn't normally tune into the Super Bowl did tune in this time uh, to see Taylor. They, they, the camera did cut away to her several times. Um, but I think it, it also circulated around the conspiracy theories, expectations of what she was going to do, maybe the after, even something as trivial as the, the after game kiss between them. Uh, it, so it's it's a bit Hollywood, it's a bit Nashville, it's very NFL, and it's just inc- so incredibly American. I wish everyone around the world could see a bit of it at least, not the whole game, the commercials as well, obviously.
0: <laughs> I was saying to another guest recently that on an unpaid basis, when you and I worked together, I actually operated as a consultant for Coca-Cola's commercials for the Super Bowl. Really? Ad agency, yeah. And I I was just trying to make them less awful, I thought. And in those days, I had a solid job and a good salary, and so I didn't care doing all sorts of stuff for free. But it was really interesting because the ad industry in the United States and in many ways internationally regards that NFL moment as utterly crucial. And sometimes the halftime entertainment matters, you know, when they – make mistakes, like inviting the Who. <laughs> yep. But, or the, the so Janet
1: Jackson debacle.
0: Oh, right, right. A nipple, a nipple. The nipple debacle. My God. Perhaps, the, right, the most shocking moment in world history. <laughs> but I don't think I've seen, and now I'm at a distance from it, anything as intriguing in all senses of the term as this issue over Taylor Swift And it just shows the absolute lunacy, (laughs) if further proof were needed, of the cultural right in the United States. Complete lunacy. My big question to you, though, is why is she with such an ugly dude? Is he sweet and kind and interesting? I don't know enough about him. What is his damn story, Derek? Travis Kelsey. Um, I don't know that much
1: about him. Uh, I do know that he is... Very well-respected and very good player for his position. Um, he's, I, I believe he's a tight end, uh, which is kind of a position that uh, does a lot of things. Um, I, I'm not sure that he's a tight end, but he, he catches the ball. He runs well. He's very big, but he moves well for his size. Um, he moves quickly for his size, and he's got really good hands. So he is respected as a player. Right. Um, he does look like... A, uh, yeah, kind of Man Mountain. Uh, not not, <laughs> not the best looking guy. He's a bear uh, like. He's a bear, dude. Yeah, yeah, he's enormous. Um and <laughs> and and the beard and yeah. Uh I don't know. Uh she's dated a lot of different people. This could always, of course, be a publicity stunt. Um be powerful for both of them. Obviously, it has been, is. Um but I don't know anything about him. I've I've heard him on podcasts, I've heard a few interviews. He seems perfectly intelligent, not incredibly um seems kind of dopey, maybe.
0: Well that might be a good a good mix.
1: The big uh, the big dopey guy who's
0: who's actually really the big guy who's yeah. kind and thoughtful. And yeah. the other thing is, especially in US football, but it's true in all US sports. Tailorization of motion is hmm. utterly crucial. Yeah. We're gonna to pretend to bring um this pitcher on so this batter just is substituted. We're gonna get this guy on at this moment in football uh because he can do one thing. So the fact that this guy is multi-talented is interesting in itself, I think. But the fact that she can hold so much significance at one time reminds me a little bit of Madonna, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, absolutely. But is, is it more powerful than that? Taylor Swift's, icon, you know, iconicity in the US these days? It seems to be more powerful.
1: Should, should we call that tailorization too? Taylor, <laughs> kind of Taylorism? Um, I love it. I mean, you took, it took me a second. I was like, Oh, Taylor. Right. Of course.
0: Right. No, I, I, I I wasn't conscious of what I was saying. Absolutely. (laughs) The scientific management of the real Taylorism.
1: Uh, I I think the fact that she's sort of overtaken Beyonce is pretty remarkable. Mm. Um, (laughs) Beyonce is of course still enormously popular. Um, and both of them are popular around the world, but I think that, yeah, the parallel to Madonna is accurate. Um, I think that's another huge fascination here, too, is with people of that kind of status and wealth and talent, when they get together, it's more than the sum of the parts. It becomes this, you know, like Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez getting back together. It's this sort of, uh, I don't know, hallucinogenic fever dream uh, that that (laughs) something so powerful could be, Three times, four times as powerful. It just joins forces. So it's, it's a little like a Marvel. Uh, the Marvel <laughs>
0: <game>. <laughs> Except we're now in a post-Marvel era. I mean.
1: Yeah, they've been they've, missing the market. They've
0: shot their hot love load, as they say in Christianity, right? Yeah. I think. So, Prof, moving on to something a bit different but connected. Yep. Some of your work is about gaming. Yeah. The digital gaming world. We've seen some dramatic changes in that sphere in recent times. Massive renewed uptake during the first two waves of COVID-19.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Lots of startups being gobbled up, lots of people losing work, people talking about organizing, more targeting female players, you name it. Tell us what's going on.
1: Uh, You know, there's, there's... And it, it's it's kind of sad. There's a there's an enormous disjoint between, in in my opinion, between the world of game studies, so the academic discipline, right. uh, the industry, and uh, actual players and, and and player groups. And a lot of that has to do with GamerGate, which was about ten years ago. Um, and for your listeners who aren't really familiar with that, it was. Uh, a pretty misogynist scandal uh, where female uh, game journalists uh, were accused of giving, you know, positive reviews for, for sex and for favors. Uh, And the gamer community or or certain toxic gamers in the, in the toxic gamer community uh, posted death threats and doxxed them and uh, generally made quite a few women's lives hell uh, to the point where, a lot of these journals actually had to go into hiding and move and and stop writing. Um, game studies as a discipline didn't really respond to that effectually, I think. Um, I think there was a lot of fear around it. Um, I certainly responded vociferously, and I, I paid for it. I was hacked a number of times, my bank account, personal information. Um, so I don't think this... There's been an enormous upswing in uh, younger scholars, who particularly women, who are writing about identity, gender, affect, politics. Whereas before GamerGate, that was much rarer. Uh, it, you know, I was in a, a very small group in game studies. You, you know, you were in that group as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an, a, an enormous focus on sociology and sort of. Proving that the field uh, was not only sustainable but not trivial—you uh, know—that sort of, at least, particularly in the U.S., that sort of ch- the scientific chip chip on the shoulder, as I call it.
0: Oh, well, well said, so. Well, <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I, thank you. It's um, so things are changing in the discipline. Uh, as far as the industry, yeah, we've seen so many huge changes. I, I it's. It's been a period, I'd say, right before the pandemic of huge, ch- catastrophic change in some ways, but also incredible sameness. Uh, and the catastrophic changes obviously come from the pandemic and the, everyone running online to play not only things like chess, but Animal Crossing and um, multiplayer online games, role-playing games, uh, as a means of you know fighting off boredom. Uh, feeling like actually doing something embodied inside of their homes, going places, Mm -hmm. um, battling, solving puzzles. Um, Mixed with that is the sameness, and a lot of that comes out of the technology. Um, Something like the Unreal Engine, which is essentially a digital toolkit for building virtual worlds. Uh, It's very powerful Um, and it it makes designers and coders jobs much, much easier. Uh, However, so many developers use it. We're seeing an incredible amount of sameness, particularly in blockbuster and AAA games, uh, as far as the physics, as far as the gameplay, as far as narrative, uh, even as far as character and sort of uh, uh, fighting and battle modes. So, you know, while... I think the pandemic has been good because it's brought gaming, even casual gaming, to many, many more people around the world. Yeah. Uh, The experiences are still incredibly limited. You can go into uh, the indie game world and there's fabulous work, especially in the queer indie game world. Uh, But getting access to that is just not uh, as easy uh, as, you know, downloading something uh, or, or going to GameStop or whatever. Uh, the GameStop thing was interesting to separate, but. Sorry, that was a rambling answer.
0: <laughs> no, it was a great answer. Thank you. I feel as though I've already learned a huge amount. And one of the other areas that you've been involved in is digital art. And there was a really fetishized moment of the non fungible token. Starting two or three years ago, that seems to have crashed out.
1: Yeah, very quickly.
0: But might be back. It's another Ponzi scheme, yeah. <laughs> obviously. Uh but and and now, but I said, but and now with the supposed rise of artificial intelligence, which has actually been around for decades, as you yeah. well know. Yeah. But the supposed sudden emergence of artificial intelligence.
1: Well, the large Clearly, language models, that's really what, you know, we're talking yeah. about there, yeah.
0: Right, but, I mean, they've been writing baseball box scores for 20 yeah. years, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, the digital art scene is in a kind of crisis, it seems to me, of legitimacy and authorship. Hmm. Have you got a take on that? uh yeah
1: i i think it, the basic ephemerality of nfts uh still you you can ask even investors in nft what it is they're investing in and the the, the answers are wildly different if <laughs> not totally inaccurate um so the the digital art piece that is attached to the token becomes the stand in you know the the sign, or the, I'm not sure if it's a sign, signifier, or um, it it becomes a stand-in that I think in a lot of ways trivialized it as actual money, um, while also adding value. So that that kind of contradiction I think confused most people and continues to confuse most people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you ask someone what a blockchain is, and and it's it's nearly impossible unless you're technically really savvy to explain it i have i have problems even thinking about nfts and how because i want them to be material right well and there is some kind of materiality it's the massive amounts of fucking excuse me energy that it takes to
0: to mine well this is the other thing of course that especially with bitcoin but also with nfts perhaps less so with some other alternative so called currencies the, the drain on the grid, the amount of carbon being used in many instances to power these things, all the supercomputers, but also ordinary computers that are on 24-7, yeah. and working away to create these logs is incredible.
1: A lot of personal computers, a, a lot of personal computer users don't even know that their system is being hijacked through the cloud right. to mine. Right. I mean that's that's in itself insane,
0: absolutely, and we're constantly getting these warning notices and on only today about how the Chinese government is breaking into the u s security system, to which I can only say more, more, <laughs> but nothing get about- better
1: get it, get as good as the Russians <laughs> at it that's right. that's the case,
0: because of course the u s would never behave in such a way,
1: we would hmm. never
0: do that. But very little about how legal and illegal corporate entities are constantly plowing their way through our laptops, our phones, our tablets.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, changing tack a little bit again, Prof, you mentioned earlier, I think you used the expression since getting ill. Mm. And I wonder whether your current situation in terms of health and... Uh, don't answer, this is getting too personal, is affecting your research, your teaching, your professional sense? Oh, that,
1: well, that's nice of you to ask. Um, uh, yes. Um, uh, I think I'm very lucky in that my mind has stayed pretty clear. Um, but the physical act of doing something like typing or reading for sustained periods it's it's gotten difficult and I'm, I'm only 52 so this is this is pretty early um I, i've actually talked to a number of other people in the field that have that have been sick or um faced disability or any kind, uh, or other kinds of physical challenges and right. and over, overwhelmingly it's the uh the, the hardest thing is to stay uh positive and make sure that that positivity is reflected in your work uh so, you're not going down an overly critical, overly negative rabbit hole. So,
0: bitterness. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's
1: pissed pissed off at the universe. <laughs>
0: yeah. Why did this happen to me?
1: It's not. It feels, the... very, it feels very essentialist to me in a lot of ways. And, you know, that's something that's a problem for me as well. I don't want to uh, put my body at the. Strangely, I don't want to put my body in, in its. It's physicality at the center of my work, but it is.
0: Well, and of course, that's interesting. Well, sorry, interesting, a slightly fetishistic thing to say. No, no, a, correct. A, a relevant thing is that your body, the body, has been so crucial to your research and your pedagogic contributions, yeah. whether it be sports or dance or being a waiter, uh, any of these things, right? And so there's a terrible irony. In confronting that, because for so many scholars, particularly perhaps men, the body is away from what they do. Yes. So, if it in some sense, lets them down in inverted commas. That's just a thing, but it's more. It must be more personal and more scholarly for you.
1: It, it, it's it certainly is, and it something that I've noticed that's interesting about. Um... Male academics is uh they they eschew sports sort of organized sports um you know anything from baseball to tennis to golf well golf because of class reasons <laughs> um but they are very quite a few of them are 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 uh very health conscious um they run they hike they uh mm. mountain climb uh so sort of more I know quite a few surfers, the the type of athletics uh, and embodied practice that uh, is, I think, more intellectual to a certain extent, but also uh, more singular, uh, mm. doesn't mm. involve a team. Uh, so there's a kind of iconoclasm to that, uh, <laughs> that kind of athleticism that I yeah. find fascinating.
0: And on the other side, Prof, when you were a dance academic... Although the body is so crucial, maybe sports are seen as occupied masculinist territory, by contrast with classical ballet or modern dance or whatever it might yeah.
1: be. Yeah, and there there are some. You're absolutely right. There are some crossovers um, dance forms, particularly hip hop, uh, that are seen as more masculine uh, because they are quote unquote more athletic or more you know in line yeah. with. Sp- Sports athleticism yeah, um, and there's a sense of risk to them, and there's a sense of sort of um, combat as well um, i mean I, I, I could ask you the same question uh, you know how how are you and your body uh, producing at, at your age, and how are you balancing that that act because're you're, you're one of the most productive people I know, but probably one of the most productive people on the planet. You probably wrote a book this morning. Good for you. (laughs) But uh, where are you in this this series of questions? If not to be too personal.
0: No, it's fine. I mean, I had cancer 25 years ago. And again, this summer. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. And I had a radical robotic prostatectomy. Okay. And... I'm thinking about these questions in terms of mortality mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in in ways that when this first happened to me twenty five years ago, I was perhaps less worried about. Uh now the how old how old were you then? I was uh thirty seven. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now I'm sixty five. And I'm in a, a holding pattern, like many patients, mm-hmm. are, of waiting to see what the latest tests show. Yeah. I'm a bit panicky because <laughs> well, Derek, I had to pay six grand to the robot that I uh. on me, and only 1,300 to the actual physical human surgeon. When I told the dude this, I said, "You know that because I didn't, my health insurance didn't cover it." Yeah. So I said, "You know that I paid, you know, four times what I paid you to the the robot." I thought he was going to have a heart attack, Mm -hmm. and uh, he's since quit his job and quit the country. He's moved from here to Portugal, and I'm in one of those modes where you, where one has built a relationship with a particular physician. Oh yeah. I'm in a panicky mode that he's gone.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have your they have your history. They have your peccadillos. Yeah, I yeah I have had to switch doctors, and I find it really yeah terrifying. Actually,
0: it is difficult. So I'm in in that moment uh, when it comes to the body itself. Um, quite a part of the, fact the cat is currently standing on my. Hey,
1: switch. that's okay. Our pet rabbit is around here somewhere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess at my age. Other things that are less dramatic go wrong, um, obviously, mm-hmm. and having to deal with that is certainly an issue.
1: Do you find that your work is as important to you, or does it take on it more importance, or well, just a different?
0: Because I don't have secure employment, and I move. I've had, I've lived in five countries in the last five years in search wow. of work. And I don't have any work after September. Mm. It's very important to me. However, getting back to what you said, Mm -hmm. I can read okay. Mm -hmm. I can talk okay. Mm -hmm. I'm having difficulty writing. Not in terms of understanding what I'm writing or knowing what I'm supposed to do, but just doing it.
1: Uh, keyboard or manually, or well, both are manual. Uh, I mean, I
0: it's, it's most of my writing is on the keyboard. So sending yeah. an email, corresponding with you recently about our conversation, no yeah. problem. Sending yeah. a WhatsApp message, no problem. But actually sitting down to write a chapter, more difficult. Yeah, and that's in the last four months since I had this surgery. So uh, right now, I'd say. It's easier to accept the fact that I can't do breaststroke.
1: Yeah. I know um, you're a huge swimmer.
0: I can't ride a bike. Um, I've been in the I I haven't been in the surf. Yeah. I I can't do various things very safely or easily. That's difficult, but it's also part of being my age. Yeah, right. So, sorry, you didn't know any of this prophecy. I had
1: heard talking. a bit, but yeah. I, yeah okay. Yeah, okay. I'm. I'm really sorry to hear that. I knew about the the cancer years ago. Right. And I, and you, I you've about had that. you've had back problems too. I think, which I have as well. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You know, um, at the moment, I'd like your view on this. I don't know if you've read about this, Derek, but there's a. Uh, a kind of tech entrepreneur, whatever those words mean in Australia, yeah. who's trying to fund a new kind of Olympics where you can dope.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: you probably read about this. And there's this Australian oh, yeah. dude who's, I think, not won an Olympic gold, but won medals and who maybe won the world championship and wants to break the record for 100 meters. A swimmer, right? And he said he'll swimmer. go to the gills,
1: uh-huh.
0: right? What's your take on that?
1: Um, well, number one, it's dangerous. Uh, just taking those drugs is so rough on the body. Um, take any kind of hormonal changes. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've taken steroids before. I I occasionally take steroids for my back and those completely changed my mood. Uh, and having done enough sports, I've been around plenty of guys that have, and, and women, Um, people. Uh, who have been on uh roids as as they they say uh the juice uh and I know a couple of them have passed away uh, several from testicular cancer uh, which is pretty common uh so it's it's dangerous and terrible for the body um but i I also think that i I can't speak for women but the the male attitude towards shattering records and becoming you know written in the stars uh it's just too much for some people so they'll take on that kind of risk i mean if you look at uh, any kind of x games or um you know extreme sports uh well i mean look at lance armstrong uh or or the maybe most of russia's olympic teams um I, I feel like it's 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 a way of staving off death. So there's there's a there's a sublime uh dimension to it as well. Uh if you can get it done before 35 or 40, then the rest of your life is, you know, illuminated.
0: What an expression to use. But how about this, prof? Think about Nick Nolte's character in North Dallas 40. Mm. You know, he can't take out get out of bed without taking Panadol. You can barely yeah. take a bath. Yeah, we both know what that feels like. Yeah, thanks to sports, right? And I guess the playing hurt logic mm. is, as for me, as I mean, as sick as the the roid logic. Yeah, but also pain killing injections, where these people are, as you know, able to play. Because their body is hidden from realizing what it's going through, yeah, frequently leading later to drug addiction, but certainly to permanent physical injury. To me, that's as big a problem as so-called performance-enhancing drugs.
1: Yeah, I agreed. I um, when I was playing soccer seriously, um, I injured my ACL. I had to. Get surgery, and uh, I, I was put back on the field much too soon. Much like so many athletes are when they have concussions. Um, that's another huge problem in the NFL, obviously, and so many black bodies being destroyed for you know people's pleasure. Um, the The overall mentality was for, uh, for for my coaches and my teammates was that. If you didn't step up, even if you were injured, then you were soft and all of that stuff, but also you weren't uh part of the team. You you just you weren't rising to the occasion for the rest of them, for the boys. Yeah. All right. And that mentality is, I think, such a driver. It's uh it's it's ingrained in us uh since childhood. Uh I started playing sports very young and and that was always the attitude, team comes first. And that meant playing injured if necessary.
0: But also the idea that it's good for you physically. (laughs) (laughs) But in fact, in many cases...
1: Walk it off is my favorite. Walk it off.
0: Yeah. Well, when I was a thing, the big big deal was the magic sponge. The sponge, a sponge that would be doused in water. Mm -hmm. And when you were lying prone on the field of play, Onward come the trainer, who of course had no qualifications.
1: Oh, yeah! Would
0: sponge you, and you would stand up, and everything would be fine. It was called the magic sponge. Now I was enough of a coward and sufficiently incompetent that I could normally avoid being tackled in such a way that the magic sponge was called for.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I knew how to dodge a couple of guys and then kick. <laughs>
1: uh that's that's what made uh, Wayne Gretzky so great uh, the the hockey player uh,
0: he oh. could dance
1: he would dance around people he would avoid injury that's how he had a nice long
0: career. career this is the most famous canadian hockey player who was meant to bring a championship to la when he left canada and went to the franchise in the national hockey league but couldn't do it I but, think I remember that, but yeah, he anyways. was but yeah, he was they called him the great one, and the well, with, about Gretzky Yeah, right, right, right is that he was not tall, he was not strong, right, he was actually quite a little guy, um, but he knew how to avoid getting hurt, and
1: he could hit. dance
0: he, it he was the could dance, dance. Dance. dance yeah, and maybe I could ask you a little bit more about bringing together those different elements, Prof, and then I've just got a couple more questions before I free you from the pod. Um, dance Go and ahead. sports. Dancing and dance being a an athlete. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess the most obvious instance would be Muhammad Ali. Mm. Mm-hmm. Dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do they sit together for you easily, uneasily? What would you say about that? You know, I,
1: I I learned a really interesting uh, fact when I was fairly in the 80s, so I was in my teens, that, that there were several pro football players, so American football, uh, who were taking ballet lessons, uh, particularly wide receivers, so people that catch, um, and they were doing this to you know improve their balance uh, and their agility and their again ability to avoid collision. Yeah, uh, so that right. they could extend their career, and and to me that made perfect sense because I had already started performing, and I was deep into athletics, uh, so I I, I started uh, taking dance lessons uh, more seriously, and it, it was interesting because my uh, you know instructors would. Would say, you know, you you're doing everything pretty right, but I see that you have an ul- ulterior purpose for this for some reason. I said, Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> trying to learn how to uh, extend my body's abilities. Because I've never, much like Gretzky, I've never been a big guy. I'm tall, I'm six two, but I'm uh then I was maybe 140, 145, so really thin. Uh so getting hit, I would fold like, you know, a mat, uh, a folding chair. How's that? Uh, <laughs> So avoiding that at all costs was was part of the plan. Also concussions, I racked up a bunch when I was younger. Um, In the dance world, I found a lot of similarity, uh, particularly when it came to toughing it out, injury, um, the magic sponge. So that attitude, uh, at least Mm. where I was taking classes and performing, uh, was was quite prevalent, and I actually found it to be true at UCR to a certain extent, especially with um, the undergrad dancers. That the show must go on. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I, I, again, I just there are so many parallels between the two, particularly when considering. I think the art the art of sport, uh, but, but the sport of art.
0: Beautifully put. No, thank you for for that. I just think about when you see, most spectacularly for me, female gymnasts who are, you know, they're not 6'2", they're 4'11", and they're taking drugs to hold back their maturation. And you, they play hurt in ways that are going to injure their limbs for life. Um, we've all seen it. So, Prof, last two questions, and then I'd like to throw it over to you to add or subtract anything you wish. Okay. So my first question is, how do you know all this stuff? How do you find shit out?
1: Oh, that's a uh, great question. Uh, you know, I don't I, – I quit social media, so – as far as the, maybe the past 10 to 12 years, uh, that has opened up enormous re- mental resources for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, also, but I do try to use the Internet effectively, um, just this pragmatically, uh, which means staying in contact with the right people um, that are connected to whatever it is I'm looking at, gaming or um, gender studies or just pop culture in general. Uh but I think also it's uh by by talking and teaching. I never have learned a topic as well as when I've written it or taught it. Mm. So again, there's that embodiedness. Uh, another frustrating thing about getting sick is it's hard to stand up for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes um uh, uh, to, to be fully present. Uh yeah. Because if I'm sitting, I, I'm not learning the same way as if I was walking and, and, mm-hmm. and interacting with classes. Um, and I, I think it's the same thing with something like gaming or or watching film or watching television. I try to embody the experiences, particularly with my partner. Um, we, we yell at the screen a lot. Mm. Uh, we research stuff and pause. And I, I think just being... As interactive as possible with the things that you love. That's my way of learning.
0: Oh, that's beautifully put. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get it. Thank you for asking that. That's, that's a tough question. Um, so, here's my, my last question, and then, as I say, I'll toss it over to you, Derek. I'm a young you know, white guy, straight or at least straightish. Why don't you do a PhD in cultural studies? Mm-hmm. I knock on your door at University of California Riverside, or I drop you an email, and I say, uh, "Ralph Burrell, I've 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 read Dietrian on uh, gaming, masculinity, culture. I'm interested in those topics, but I feel a bit lost." Mm. What should I do? What should I read? How should I proceed?
1: Oh, that's uh, it's a good question, but it's that's complicated. Um, I would need a couple of hours. I would probably ask them to come back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: A good answer. Come back after the Super Bowl. Come back after we've seen the ratings and the approval scores for the different commercials.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would certainly say you know start with some of what we might consider classics so as you mentioned Gramsci Adorno um Baudrillard Spivak uh getting a good foothold in I think in critical theory and and particularly the British school cultural studies um especially on television uh you can't understand something like video games unless you understand other media's relationship to them. But you also can't understand, I think, video games uh, unless you understand them as a type of performance. Mm -hmm. And so studying things like performance studies or dance um, or art in general, I think, would be smart. And then I would say, find a player group. If you want to study games, find a group of players to play with. I uh studied uh, a game called America's Army which is essentially a, a, it's run by the US military uh and it's essentially a way for them to hijack young minds and hook them on the armed services and I joined the player group and uh played with them for years uh they were all teens and all four of them ended up enlisting and we kept in touch with them and they're Their commentary and their experiences on the battlefield uh, were so fascinating in relationship to their memories of the game. And a lot of them kept playing while they were there. So I have never learned more about masculinity, uh, violence, uh, the body than from those four guys. So again, interacting as much as you can with the, the things around you.
0: That's a very moving story, and it's a terrific book, folks.
1: Uh, Oh, thank you. It's a little uh, out of date. It's a little out of date, though. So watch out. I'm not as
0: out of date as I am.
1: (laughs) Oh, you're still current.
0: (laughs) I I I wonder if there are things that you'd like to subtract from or add to what we've discussed.
1: Uh, No, I I I have a few questions for you, if that's all right. Uh, I I regularly watch the Colbert. Uh, the late late night with Stephen Colbert, and he di- he has this thing called the um, the Colbert Quiz or something like that, <laughs> and he gives it to you know illustrious guests. And since you are illustrious, and I but I'm your guest, I'm going to flip it, and and so I'll ask you you know a couple of rapid fire questions. Maybe <laughs> afterwards, you will be known as as <laughs> Stephen says. So uh, number one, favorite sandwich.
0: Favorite sandwich. Anything with avocado. Oh, okay. Preferably toasted. Oh, but
1: maybe like a BLT, vegan bacon with some right. avocado.
0: Right. Except I don't like mimetic meat, so really, oh. I, I prefer something that doesn't pretend. I want. I'm happy with the LT and avocado, LTA A L T.
1: Maybe some uh, arugula. That's nice
0: on there. Arugula. One of the interesting things about that I've learned since coming here is that in Madrid, where I live, the word they use is rucula. Uh-huh. So it begins with an R, not an A, and then it's, it's got mm-hmm. a C instead of a G. Rucula. But if you go to some other parts of Spain, it's rugula, rugula. So they use the G like in English. I have other interesting stories that are almost as fascinating as that. But <laughs> I can't
1: well, see, I learned something by interacting with things <laughs> that,
0: that I love. Huh. Uh, uh, apples or... Apples or...
1: Or oranges.
0: Oh, oranges. More work, more reward.
1: Yeah, interesting
0: interesting.
1: A few... What would be the one song that you brought with you?
0: Yeah them. Um, this is one of those unfortunate answers because um you know it, it goes back to things that are quite primal mm-hmm. uh, and you know awful. And it's a song by the Verve, an English band I, I guess. Yeah. From, yeah, from the 80s or 90s. The 90s, yeah, I think. Well, and it's Bittersweet Symphony, which they stole from uh, Mick and Keith. <laughs> and oh, so, they? I, yeah, there okay. was a copy, copyright case where the Stones Great. are co-authors of the song. Oh. But, yeah, Bittersweet Symphony, I think.
1: Because it is a very, it's a very simple song all the way through. I've played it. I, I'm I'm also a drummer. There's another embodied thing that I do. I've played it before. It's a wonderfully um, repeating, kind of calming beat.
0: Well, I actually can't even remember. Let me look it up. What the Stones song is that they allegedly stole it from, or didn't allegedly. I mean, they've it's decided, as it were, legally. Um
1: yeah, to get a co-writing, yeah, my husband.
0: So, ah, the last time. This will be the last time. Oh, ba 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 bum, bum. Maybe the last time. I don't know. So. Oh, I
1: think I hear it. I've never quite
0: caught the yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: That's a good answer.
0: So uh, that that's the song, I think, Bittersweet Symphony. And in the video clip for it, the dude is walking along a street in London, I know, and being mm-hmm. a real monster. He's like pushing people out of the way. Pushing people out of the, out of the out
1: way, of, yeah.
0: All the rest of it. And it just has some of that nihilism that is both repellent and attractive in its own, again, masculine way.
1: I think that that post punkness,
0: yeah, right.
1: You, you and I have always seen eye to eye on that for sure.
0: <laughs> I think so. And the Verve were a, an amazing band, but uh, also awful. And that, that dude Richard Ashcroft is a very weird person, but those people lived in the time that was odd and interesting. So,
1: well, I remember them being a side oasis and. There was a kind of rivalry in the states, at least.
0: Exactly, America. exactly. Brit pop, and I, unfortunately, I just thought Oasis were Beatles ripoffs. Yes. Um, and uh, the, I think
1: they were unashamed of that.
0: Yeah, probably. And <laughs> Earth actually had something to to say, but they these were all monstrously narcissistic <laughs> dudes. I
1: thought, I yes. suspect. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that's the that's the. That's the the limit of the questionnaire I'm going to do today. That's
0: actually. good. That's fine. And uh, I
1: think, Toby Miller, you are now known.
0: I Exactly. <laughs> so, Prof, thank you so much for doing this. It was fun answering those questions, by the way. But thank it was you also so much. Great. Uh, I always, and I've said this to numerous other interlocutors, but it's true when I say it. I always learn a lot when I read your work. And uh, in our more than 20 years of friendship I learn a lot from every conversation so thank you so much
1: I'm uh, humbled and deeply appreciative that you asked me and I, I appreciate your listeners taking the time to, to listen to both of us yammer on for an hour
0: <laughs>